0: Amen. Just ask you to pray for me this week. We'll finish up being with our students at Camp Shaco tomorrow, and then I'll be back there Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday. I've been asked to be Camp Pastor for Tuscaloosa Christian School's Spiritual Retreat out there. So just when you think summer camps are over, oh no, uh, they're not. So some wonderful opportunities before us, So. Pray for us about that. How many licensed drivers do we have in the room today? Just a show of hands. All right, hold them up. Hold them up. Hold them up high. All right, yeah, good, good. All right, now, second question. How many of you would say, I'm better than the average driver on the road? (laughs) Okay, that is mathematically impossible. Like 95% of you just said I am probably better than the average person on the road. Listen, that's our tendency as human beings, right? We we tend to think I am better than the average person when it comes to driving. Or we may think I am better than the average person when it comes to working hard, or I am more intelligent than the average person, or I am more attractive than the average person. This is just the way the human heart seems to be bent. We have this common trait as human beings that we sort of stand outside the circle and we put everybody else in the circle and we point at the circle and say, yeah, I'm better than that. I'm I'm, I'm better than they are. I'm, I'm, I'm a better person than they are. I'm smarter than they are. They're inferior to me. If you understand that description, then I think you're kind of on your way to understanding what self-righteousness is. And self-righteousness is what we're gonna talk about today because that's where we've come in our walk through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 12 is where we've are today, where we are today. And we've seen this thing called self-righteousness pop up again and again in Matthew's Gospel, right? And who are typically the people that we see acting out in self-righteousness? The Pharisees, that's right. The religious leaders, they're hating on Jesus. And people tend to associate self-righteousness with religious people. True or false? True. And, and rightly so. But the reality is, it's not just the religious people... Who draw the circle around other people and say, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm I'm better than that. That's all people who do that. It's part of our human nature. And I believe the sin of self righteousness reeks in the nostrils of God. But I believe that that smell is even more nauseating to God when he smells the sin of self righteousness in the lives of his people, in his church among his sons and his daughters. In fact, I would even argue that the sin of self-righteousness may be one of the most evil sins in the world. For this reason, the sin of self-righteousness will cause a person to say things like, I don't need to be forgiven. And at the same time, the sin of self-righteousness will cause a person to look at somebody else and say, I'm not forgiven them because they don't deserve it. And this is the problem with self-righteousness. And what self-righteousness looks like in the church is good people, moral people, religious people find their identity. They place their trust in their, their religiosity, in their good doing, in their box checking, in their moral behavior and uprightness. And our generation, I think, probably is more engulfed in self-righteousness maybe than ever before because we have these things called cell phones and computer screens. And, And here's what we do. We scroll through social media and we step out of the circle and say, would you look at that? Would you look at how they think, how they talk? Would you look at that? Look at how they're dressing. Look at the decisions they're making. We turn on the news and we watch mainstream media. We do it all over again. We step outside the circle and we, we point our fingers. Look at those people. Can you believe that's what's happening? God, God, aren't you glad I'm not like those people? And that is precisely how self-righteous people talk. Jesus explains this in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, by way of a parable. It says he also told this parable to some who trusted in who? Themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, all right? he is describing the way self-righteous people talk here. And they treat others with contempt. Verse 10, he says it this way. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee said, standing by himself, outside the circle, because this is what self-righteous people do, nobody's like me. Only if they were. Oh, God, let it be that everybody would think like me, act like me, talk like me. There's so this Pharisee standing by himself, and he prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Listen, listen. If your version of Jesus causes you to size people up so that you can write them off, you got the wrong version of Jesus. If that's your version of Jesus, that you can size people up and dismiss them and point down at them, that's the wrong Jesus. When our rightness becomes an excuse to dismiss people that we believe are less right than us, hello, in that moment, we're not as right as we thought we were. See, we can catch somebody doing or saying something wrong, and and then we want to use that as a license to destroy them, to drag them through the dirt. By the way, Satan loves that. That's his game. Do you know what the word Satan literally means? It means accuser. Satan loves to step outside the circle and accuse. But, church, I'm telling you good news today. We have another, and he's not the accuser, he's the advocate. Our advocate, Jesus, doesn't stand outside the circle condemning, he steps inside the circle. And advocates for us, defends his people. But Satan loves it when we don't imitate Jesus. Satan loves it when we imitate Satan and step outside the circle and condemn everybody inside the circle. And Paul warns us about that. Galatians chapter 5 verse 15, he says, But if you bite, he's talking to Christians in a church. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. If you keep pecking on each other and picking on each other and nibbling on each other and backbiting on each other, be careful because you're going to turn around and nothing's going to be left. That's what he just said. To be consumed by one another. So you need to know this, church folks. We can be right about something And at the same time, be offensive to God and toxic to other people. It's not enough to simply be right. We can be right till the cows come home and still be offensive to God. And still be destructive and toxic to the people around us. See, when when we're feeling self-righteous, we're shoveling shame to other people shoving that shame onto them and oftentimes then we turn angry in it even vindictive in it and then what we do is we kind of enjoy that so we start looking for more to shame them with we start looking for more that's wrong more that we could stand outside the circle and point out say look at that did you know this about them have you noticed this i don't like that you don't like that either do you and it's a snowball effect and some would just be happy to let the snowball get so big that it would even they would even be okay letting it just roll over Jesus so that it ultimately could crush the person that they're pointing at and condemning. And I don't know if you have felt this in your heart as we have gone through Matthew's gospel, but I have. And Jesus brought it to my attention this week. And you've heard it in my preaching. Man, I have loved it when Jesus has... Backslapped those self-righteous Pharisees. When he's flexed and just let them have it, I'm like, yeah, that's my Jesus. Get them, Jesus. And this week he goes, <clears throat> you, you know what you're doing right now? You, you just stepped outside the circle and you just said, get them, Jesus, because I'm better than they are. So get Get them. I'm doing the same thing. It's nothing but self-righteousness on my part. Me standing outside the circle and saying, I sure am glad I am not like them. It's smug. It's a sense of superiority over somebody else. And it is nauseating to God when his people think that way and act that way. See, here's the thing about self-righteousness. It's sneaky. Right? It's deceptive. I mean, there's a whole lot of sins that we wouldn't bring in here. Because they're not sneaky. They're not deceptive. But boy, man, we can walk through these doors in our self-righteousness. We can sing the songs in our self-righteousness. We can read our Bibles. We can even pray in our self-righteousness just like the Pharisee prayed in his self-righteousness. It's sneaky, deceptive. Self-righteousness convinces you that you are well when you are sick. See, it's a dangerous thing to be physically sick and to not know it. It's far more dangerous to be spiritually sick and to not know it. Solomon writes these words in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, about how ignorant we all are about the true state of ourselves. He says, All the ways of man, the way they think, their attitudes, the way they talk, what they do, their choices, decisions, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord, the Lord doesn't see it like you see it. The Lord doesn't agree with your estimation of yourself. He says, the Lord weighs the spirit. What is Solomon doing? He's describing the self-righteous person. The self-righteous person stands outside the circle and believes that what I'm doing is better than what they're doing. I'm I'm a better person than what they are. I'm more right than they are. The self-righteous person thinks that they don't do anything wrong. And if they do think they do something wrong, they're quick to excuse it or they're quick to justify it. Here's what that means to justify it. I, I'm in Word documents all the time. So I'm, I'm either left justify, I'm lining it up over here, right? Or I right justify, I'm lining it up over here. And the self-righteous, when they do wrong, they go, okay, yeah, I might have done wrong, but I'm going to bring it into alignment by excusing it this way. Telling you it's okay because of this, right? And so we justify and we make excuses. And Jesus sends a strong message to a self-righteous church. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Verse 15, I know. Listen, when Jesus breaks through the madness and you hear him say to you, I know. I hope that grabs your attention. He says, I know your works. And you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Why is this making Jesus sick? Verse 17. Because you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. And I don't need anything. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is a church that thought... They had it all. This is a church that thought they were healthy. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, You have no idea. You're sick. And I wonder today if that describes the heart of your pastor. I wonder today if that describes your heart before the Lord today. That that we've come here today and Man, we're giving ourselves extra pat on the back because it's a holiday weekend and we're at church. Come on. And who ain't here? I wonder if this is the Lord's estimation of grace life today. You, You think you're healthy, but you're not. Today, Matthew brings us to this place in Matthew chapter 12. Where I need to, and you need to, and we need to, take a long, hard look. Looking straight today into the mirror of God's Word. Not to see anybody else's reflection, but only my reflection in His Word. And we might just see that there's more self-righteousness in us than we ever realized. And may that be a wake-up call to us. And you say, why? Because as long as we're holding on to our self-righteousness, we are not holding on to the righteousness of Jesus. The one who loved us and gave himself for us to rescue us from sin and death in the grave. May God wake us up to let go of our self-righteousness that we might hold on to Jesus in whom alone righteousness, true righteousness, is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Today we're going to look at The dangerous consequences of self-righteousness. This is the path we may find ourselves on today. God forbid. The dangerous consequences of self-righteousness. The first one is this. The self-righteous make demands of God. The self-righteous make demands of God. Look at what happens. Verse 38, back to Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This is one of the great dangers of self-righteousness. One of the great dangers of self-righteousness is you believe that you're in a position to order God around. You believe that you're in a position to make demands of God. You believe that you somehow come down your high horse of Mount Sinai and can hand God the stone tablets. Say, here's my demands. Do it. We do that, right? Why? Because we, we know better than God. We're, we're, we're better judges of that than He is. We trust our character more than His. The Pharisees are demanding here that Jesus prove Himself to them. They're putting Him on trial. Who are we to put Almighty God on trial to prove Himself? Who are we to put Almighty God on the stand? And demand that he explain himself. He alone is the righteous judge. But self-righteousness dangerously convinces us that we can judge God. And that we can judge him rightly. And that we can judge him accurately. And that we can judge him justly. But that's the way of the self righteous. This is what we do. We step outside the circle and we judge everybody in the circle including God. It's quiet in here today. Y'all like it when I preach to people that don't know Jesus. When the preacher shows up and he preaches to the saints, they're like, go back to camp. Read the story of Job. How many of you would say, yeah, I think I've leveled up to where Job was as a human being. The Bible says, among man, there wasn't anybody like this guy. But as the story unfolds, you know what God begins to reveal in Job's heart? There was some self-righteousness kind of tucked away secretly back there in Job's heart. We get to a place where Job begins to want to put God on the stand and, hey, explain yourself to me. This isn't right. You got it wrong. What's happening here? Then God begins to speak up. To Job, this is how he responds to the self-righteous. In chapter 38 of Job, and just hang on, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Because it's medicine for us self-righteous folks. We need to be reminded this is how God comes at us in our self-righteousness. Job chapter 38, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this? Huh. First three words, God just steps out of the whirlwind, and there's Job and his self-righteousness, and God says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I got some questions for you. I've been listening to your questions. What God has just done is said, okay, Job, you put me in the circle long enough. I'm not in it anymore. You're in it. Now let's talk. I got some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. I'm sure you know. Who determined the dimensions of the earth? Who stretched out the survey? Did you do that, Joe? Did you hold the tape measure for me that day? Were you there? I don't think so. What supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone? Was that you? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it, it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates limiting its shores, I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Was that you, Job? Did you tell the waves where to stop? I, I think that was me, actually, Right? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear, Job, and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It's robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that's raised in violence. Have you ever explored the springs from which the seas have come, Job? You ever been down there? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? You got the coordinates of that, Job? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it, if you know. Where's light come from? Where's darkness go? Can you take them each home? Do you know how to get where they live? Of course you know all this. For you were born before it was all created, right? And so you're very experienced. God gets a little sarcastic. You see that? Have you visited the storehouses of the snow? Or seen the storehouses of hell? I've reserved them as weapons for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. Job, where's the path to the source of light? Where's the home of the east wind? Who created a channel for the torrents of rain? Who laid out the path for lightning? Who makes the rain fall on barren land in a desert where no one lives? Who sends rain to satisfy the parched ground and make the tender grass spring up? Do you do that, Job? Like, does James Span show up and go, hey, thank you, Job, for sending rain? Because we sure needed it today. Is that you? Does the rain have a father who gives birth to the dew? Who's the mother of the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? For the water turns to ice as hard as rock, and the surface of the water freezes. Can you direct the movement of the stars, Job? Binding the cluster of Pleiades, or loosening the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellation through the seasons, or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Can you do that? Do you know the laws of the universe, Job? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike right where you direct it to? And who gives intuition to the heart, instinct to the mind? Is that coming from you, Job? Are you the source of mankind's intuition? Who's wise enough to count all the clouds? Who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil is hardened into clogs? Can you stop, pray for a lioness? Can you control the jungle? Job can you even do that. Forget the stars. Can you just hop into the middle of the African jungle and feed them? Satisfy the young lions' appetites as they lie in their dens or crouch in their thicket. Who provides food for the ravens when they're young crowd to God? Do you do that, Job? Do you go around making sure all the birds are fed and wander about in their hunger? See, the self-righteous make demands of God, and this is what God does. He responds like this. And y'all, this is just chapter 38 of God having this conversation with Job. God's going to keep throwing these haymakers all the way through chapter 41 of Job. Listen, the dangerous consequences of self-righteousness, one, the self-righteous make demands of God. You don't want to put yourself in that place. Two, the self-righteous are doomed before God. Doomed before God. Look at what Jesus says next to them, verse 39. And he answered them, you want a sign? You want a sign? You want to put me on the stand? you you're making demands of me? You-, you want to see a sign? Here's a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except, I'll give you a sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, hey, you you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You you know how Jonah was swallowed up by that whale, was in the belly of that whale for three days, and on the third day God caused him, that whale to convulse and spit uh, Jonah out on the shore? Well, it's going to look like death is going to swallow me up. You're going to crucify me and nail me to the cross, and the grave's going to swallow me up. But on three days, my Father's going to cause the grave to convulse, and it's going to spit me out. I'm going to be alive on the third day. That's the only sign you're going to get. And then all the repentant self-righteous are going to stand before the risen Christ one day in judgment. And He says in verse 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment With this generation, with all of y'all, all all y'all standing here in front of me. Jesus looking at all these people in front of, all y'all today, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A reluctant prophet went and preached to these people and they repented. But the Son of God himself is standing in front of you, and you're bowed up like you want to battle against me. So when the day of judgment comes, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up, and they're going to declare you guilty. And they're going to condemn you. Because you've received more light of the goodness and the grace and the revelation of God than they ever did. And yet they responded to what they knew. And you're resisting what you know. And by the way, you know the reason Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh and preach Because he was self-righteous. That's why he didn't want to go. It wasn't that it was an inconvenient journey. He was self-righteous. He did not want the people in Nineveh to know God. Jonah was outside the circle, pointing at the Ninevites, going, get them, God. Smite them, God. Kill them, God. And God says, no, Jonah, I'm going to save them. No. No. In fact, Jonah... I'm going to use you as my messenger to tell them I'm going to save them. I ain't going. I'm not going. It was self-righteousness. But God did save them. And you get to the end of the book of Jonah, guess where Jonah is? He's still wallowing in his self-righteousness. He's still wallowing in his self-pity. He's pouting. Because he still hates the people in the circle, and now God has saved them, and he's going to have to spend eternity with them. He's not happy about that. And Jesus just said the people of Nineveh, the worst of the worst. They, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That's why Jonah hated them. They were wicked, evil, cruel people. But Jesus just said the men of the capital city of the Assyrian Empire who found forgiveness from God are going to rise up on Judgment Day and they are going to pronounce condemnation on the most religious people who saw God in flesh every day for three and a half years because they would not repent of their self-righteousness. And by the way, remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to men who are Jewish, who are religious, These same Jewish religious men every day would wake up, and here's how they prayed. They would pray pointing at the circle. This was their prayer, literally. Oh God, I thank you that I am not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile, and that I'm not a pagan. That's how they prayed every single day. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a pagan. So Jesus throws this punch, verse 42. He says, the queen of the south. He's looking at these religious Jewish men. He says, the queen of the south. Can I tell you who the queen of the south is? She was the woman in the circle. She's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's pagan. She's everything they were glad they weren't. And Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with y'all and condemn it. Why? Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is right in front of you. The God of Solomon is right here. She had enough humility to come from the ends of the earth to hear about Solomon's God. And Solomon's God is right here living in your neighborhood. And in your self-righteousness, you're resisting him and rejecting him. Their self-righteousness runs so deep that now they've put Jesus in the circle. And they're saying, we don't want to be like him. And we're glad we're not like him. We're better than him. The dangerous consequences of self-righteousness. The self-righteous make demands of God. The self-righteous are doomed before God. Number three, the self-righteous are defenseless. Defenseless without God. Jesus abruptly shifts the metaphor here. And at first it's confusing, but hang with me because it makes perfect sense. He says in verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. Just a few moments earlier, if you remember back in chapter 12, he's just cast out a demon from a man that was mute and blind, right? And so he's kind of circled back to that, but there's a reason for it. Hang on. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places seeking rest, the demon spirit does, trying to find another place to live, but it finds none. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. In other words, the person whose body I just left, that was my house, I'm going to go back to them. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. The demon's not there anymore. The person's been freed. Their life's well-ordered now, it's clean, it's well-kept, but it's vacant. He says, then that demon spirit goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter there and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. And Jesus looks at these men and says, so also will it be with this evil generation. What does this mean? So having just healed this man, of demonic possession, Jesus uses that to make a point. He says, I cast a demon out of a person. This demon was taking up residence in a person, but now it's gone. That person's free. Now their life's put back together except for it's vacant. It's empty. There's a void there. They're defenseless still. They may be free, but they're defenseless. And so this spirit can come back and inhabit them once again, but they won't stop at that. They're going to bring roommates with them now. And Jesus says, this time is going to be even worse than it was before. What does this have to do with the Pharisees being self-righteous? This. Externally, they were well-ordered. They were keeping a clean house. Keeping everything swept up, nice and tidy. Looked like they had it all together, like good church people, but they were empty. Paul says it this way, they had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. They were empty of, void of, the power of, and the presence of God. Jesus elsewhere calls them whited sepulchers. You're just whitewashed tombs. You look clean and well put together on the outside but you're empty and you're void on the inside and you are defenseless against the attacks of satan the darkness and demons as long as they remain locked in their self-righteousness believing that god needs them they don't need god they're sitting ducks and so are you and so am i In our self-righteousness, when we begin to believe that I don't need God, he's the one that's lucky to have me, and you're lucky to have me, and I don't need you, we're defenseless. We're sitting ducks against satanic attack. What are we saying? The dangerous consequences of self-righteousness, the self righteous make demands of God. They're doomed before God. They're defenseless without God. So if today, you and me and us, if we're clinging to our self-righteousness today, I hope you're hearing this warning today from Jesus. Let it go. Repent of our self-righteousness. Let it go. Because as long as we're hanging on to our self-righteousness, you know what we're not holding on to? We're not holding on to his righteousness. As long as we're not holding on to his righteousness, you know what we're boasting in? Me. Mine. But Tucker, when we hold on to his righteousness, man, we realize God created us with a pointer finger for one reason. Not to point at the people in the circle, but to point at the one who saved us who through his perfect sinless life and his place for us on Calvary's cross, through his broken body and his blood that was shed, a righteousness that was not our own, a righteousness that we could not earn, achieve, or work for, has been given to us freely as a gift of God's grace to us through his son Jesus. And as long as we're holding on to his righteousness and not our own, our pointer finger is aimed in the direction it ought to be. And thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. I boast in him alone, not in me. Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What's he saying? In other words, God has revealed his righteousness to us, but it hasn't come through the law. Law Law-keeping, good doing cannot provide you with righteousness. All the law can do, all God's commandments can do is point you to the fact that you need righteousness. That you're a desperate sinner, lawbreaker, who can't fix yourself. That's why God gave us the law, to show us our great need for a Savior. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, point to the righteousness. Verse 20, the righteousness of God, through what? Through what? Faith. The righteousness of God through faith in, that's not my name there. That's not your name there. Not faith in me. Not faith in my mama. Not faith in my preacher. Faith in Jesus Christ for who? All. Who what? I heard you, little one. Who believe. Not who do. Who believe. Why? Because there's no distinction. What does he mean? It don't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, pagan, male, female, rich, poor, black, white. None of that makes a difference. You know why? Verse 23, because all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. What I tell you justified means, it means to be brought into alignment. And I can't bring myself into alignment. But God, through his son Jesus, he's brought me into alignment with himself. He's justified us. We're all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His what? Grace, His undeserved mercy and love. It's a gift through the what? Redemption. What is redemption? It means He bought us. We were slaves to sin and God bought us. He purchased us from that to Himself with the body and the blood of His own Son through Calvary's cross that is in Christ Jesus. Do you hear what God just said through his word to his people? He's saying, there's no place for my people to stand outside any circle and say, look at them. Look at that, God. There's no place among the people of God. He said, but pastor, aren't we supposed to rebuke and correct and point out? Yes, but not with a heart to go, see, you're busted. We're supposed to do those things with a heart that's broken for people. Knowing such was I before the grace of God came to rescue me. Listen, church, accountability is not a finger in the face. It's an arm around the shoulder. It's walking with people through the mess and the mud and the mire and the brokenness and loving like Jesus has loved us. If we are not saved today, If you're not saved today, you need to be saved. Your resume, your righteousness will not stand on the day of judgment. And if we are saved today, and we're pointing our fingers at other people, today would be a good day to wise up. And to repent. And to realize God gave me this pointer finger to point at only one. To draw attention to only one. To boast in only one. To Jesus, who loved a sinner, Brother Larry, like me, and gave his life to make me his own. God, thank you for your word. Even though it stings, it's so needed. It's so easy to find ourselves living outside some chalk circle we've drawn like children in life's playground. Criticizing and condemning And comparing. But Jesus, you step into the circles. You bear the sin. You did at the cross. You bore the shame at the cross. You took all the finger pointing on yourself at the cross. So God, I pray for those today who've yet to put their faith in you. To give them a righteousness that they cannot ever attain on their own. I pray today that they would turn to you and be saved. That their trust would be in you alone. And God, I pray for the saved in the room today. God, that you would meet us in this place today and you would change us. What I find to be true is the more I look at the mirror of your word, the more I realize I am in desperate need of you to change me. Not change myself, it's not an opportunity to make another religious list of things to do or how to improve self. Today's a gracious reminder for you, God, that our hope and our help comes from you and from you only. It's a gracious and kind reminder that the gospel and our belief in your son Jesus is the power to save us not only over sin's penalty, but over sin's power in our lives. Lord, you've simply called us to humble ourselves. You've said in your word that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Pray. Turn from their wicked ways. Seek my face. You've promised that you would hear and that you would respond. So, Holy Spirit, would you work in us right now that our hearts might be humble before you. That our eyes would be on none other but you. That our attention and our pointer finger would be aimed right now at you and you alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. I wanna invite you to stand and I wanna invite you to worship. I'm not inviting you to sing, I'm not inviting you to go through a ceremony now where we close the service down and we go home and we enjoy our Labor Day weekend. I'm inviting the people of God to worship the Lord. What a day for us to be on our knees. What a day for us to be on our faces before God who is so kind and so good and so gracious to us. He's not taking the day off. He came to work today to work graciously on you and on me and in you and in me and through you and through me. So let's let him work. We need him to work, don't we?